Hey, we're going to get into the Bible study for this morning. We're going to be opening up Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. And I entitled this Bible study, Seeking That Which Is Above. Now, <laughs> you can usually tell the person who is not from these parts. Uh, they're the ones wearing the ruby slippers and carrying a little dog in a basket. Or at least that was the case with Dorothy Gale when she woke up in the land of Oz. Now, for those of you from my generation, at Thanksgiving time, the Wizard of Oz, all these old gray heads are going, yeah, yeah, man, right on, right on. When we were kids, many years ago, at this time of the year, always around Thanksgiving, they would show the Wizard of Oz. And of course, Dorothy Gale was the main character, and she wakes up after a, a tornado rips through her Kansas home, and she wakes up in the land of Oz. And as she steps out of her house and into the Munchkin village, she immediately realizes that she looks very different from these miniature little Munchkins. And along her journey, which is the whole course of the show, she's encountering witches and wizards and flying monkeys and talking scarecrows and cowardly lions. And, and through all of these experiences, she realizes there's no place like home. Home for her was Kansas. It was not Oz. And she was a stranger in a foreign land and a pilgrim passing through. But her heart never wavered from her home. And as Christians, we find ourselves very much in a land of Oz as well. There's all kinds of strange creatures that we encounter, activities, amusements that draw us deeper and deeper into this land of Oz we know of as the world. And if we are not careful, if we are not fixed on our home, which is heaven, we can find ourselves <laughs> conjuring spells and acting like monkeys and, and engaging in empty-headed talk and living in fear. In short, we could become consumed with integrating into a world which we simply don't belong to. Heaven is our home. That's the, the underlying message of this passage. Heaven is our home. And like Dorothy, we should have our gaze fixed solely on there. You know, she was able to skillfully navigate through all the difficulties she met because she knew who she was. She knew what she was all about. And she knew where she was going. And Paul tells the Colossians and really Christians of all ages that we too must set our affections on our home. Our home is heaven. It is not here. Our life is hidden in Christ. He is our all and all. And therefore we are to put to death the desires, the affections, the things that have characterized our life in this world before we were drawn into God's marvelous light. And that's really what Paul is wanting to get across to these Colossians. Now, the, the, the letter of Colossians varies very much like the formula Paul uses for most of his letters, where the early chapters, the first half of the epistle, is usually conveying doctrinal truth. And then the second half of the, of the epistle conveys the application. And so we are now entering the application phase of this epistle. And what we're going to do here is, uh, first of all, we're going to come to grips with our position in Christ. We've talked about that in the previous two weeks but we're going to look at our position in Christ right now, not in the afterlife, but right now. 
And that is that we have died with Christ, that is to our sins, and we have been raised with him in the heavenly places in the newness of life. So we're going to get a handle on that positioning. And then secondly, Paul gives us a painful summary of some of the, uh, the fleshly desires that characterized our lives and indeed human life apart from Jesus Christ. And there's a warning there that we need to be careful to keep ourselves, keep our affections directed on the Lord and not in those places because we are very easily drawn back into, you know, as the Bible says, the same vomit that we used to uh, be part of. And then thirdly, we're going to listen to Paul explain the transformation that is characteristic and true for every believer in Jesus Christ. And so if you would, please stand with me. As I said, we're going to be studying the first 11 verses, but for right now, let's just read the first four, and then we'll pick up the remaining verses later. Here's what it says. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, the things that Paul is explaining to us in this passage are monumental, Lord. They were revolutionary to the ears of the first century Colossians. They are revolutionary still today. The notion that we have died, our old self has died we have a new life in Christ. We were raised with him. That he is our life. He is indeed life. These are, these are foundational truths, Lord, which I pray this morning we would not miss. And so, Lord, as your servant this morning to speak these words to these precious saints, I pray, God, that nothing would issue forth from my heart or my lips but that which you want your people to hear this morning. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we seek those things which are above because as we're told in verses 1 and 2, we have been raised with Christ. We should seek those things because that's what our life in Christ is all about. Our citizenship, as I mentioned in the opening, it's not of this world. We can get very consumed with the things of this world. We can get very fearful of the things that could threaten our mortal, our physical lives Forgetting, of course, that we have eternal life. And the Lord has cautioned us, do not fear those that can harm the body, but fear, those that can, fear the one who can cast one's entire, entire being into hellfire. And so because we are positioned in heaven, our concern should be on heavenly things. Because Dorothy was from Kansas, her mind was fixed on things from Kansas, like Auntie M. Uncle Henry, and Toto too. <laughs> and so what does it mean to be risen with Christ? Uh, look there in verses 1 and 3, because we learn two very important things in those verses. First of all, in verse 3, we're, we learn that we have died. I don't know, but you guys look pretty good to me. <laughs> I don't know, does death become you? No. What he's talking about is that you have died to your old self. What characterized your old self? Your old self was characterized by being a slave to your carnal desires. This is the state of the world. 
it is inescapable because of the sin nature that all of us were born into. And this is why you could almost get more frustrated and angry with a, a Christian who's acting carnally than with a person in the world because the person in the world is simply acting according to their nature. But when we fall into sin, we, we are acting in contravention to our nature because we have died to that person. We learn in verse 1 that we have been raised with Christ. We've, we are basically now alive in a whole new way. This is, as I described last time, the significance in the ordinances that Christ left the church. He left us with baptism. He left us with communion. With baptism, the way in which we do it, and I think the way in which the early church did it, was what we call submersion baptism. Taking the repentant sinner into the water, which symbolizes just what, what we learn there in verse 3, that we died that is to say, we died with Christ on the cross, that old nature, that sin nature. And then when we bring them out of the water, that signifies the new life that we have in Christ. As he was raised, we were raised with him. It says, you died, your life is hidden in, uh, with Christ. And so the things that we carried in our old nature have literally been put to death on the cross of Calvary. Now, this is a truth that we can, we can very easily get disconnected from. Again, the things of the world are very enticing. Although we have now this new life in Christ, we still live alongside as the, I guess it's the book of Romans terms, that the old man or the old woman, that old nature still is residing in the background. And whichever dog we feed, as the, uh, as the metaphor goes, that is the one that will be the strongest influence in our lives. This is what Paul would write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These words sound, um, I'll just say it, they sound hard to believe. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live. Well, I still have all the memories of the 30-some years I spent before I came to Christ, as I'm sure many of you have. I still have the ability to see and react to the various stimuli of the world that's around me, that's around you. But the, the key differentiator here is that unlike before, Christ now lives in me. Christ now lives in me. The Spirit of God calls my body his temple. I don't have to go to a city, for us it would be a city in a foreign country, which by the way we're going in February, and I forgot to mention, but next week, December the 4th, after service, 1 o'clock, Israel orientation meeting. We'll be right here and we'll also be on Zoom, but we digress. I don't have to go to a foreign city. I don't have to wait till February to go and to worship God in the place where his temple once stood because the temple of the living God is in my heart. And so the, this is the... This is, this is the reason why I put I surrender in the set for worship. That's the challenge of our life, isn't it? Our challenge is to surrender to the new life 
Our challenge is to set aside the old life. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. This is a, this is a monstrous chapter. Uh, Romans in general is, is just incredible. But uh, picking up in verse 6, and this, this hits me hard. It hurts me because he's calling me an old man right there at the get-go. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer live and no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, obviously, that's a true statement. I have never seen a corpse speeding on the highway. I've never seen a corpse stealing from a Target store. For he, has, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has do dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, now here comes the, the connection between the example of Christ being overlaid now directly on you and me. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when he uses that word reckon, he's basically saying measure your life in accordance with Christ's life. Reckon yourself just... Hey, for a few hours there, Jesus had your sins. Every single sin that you ever have committed and will commit was hung on the cross in Jesus. And that is true of every sinner of the world. And then he died to those sins. Those sins were first nailed to the cross and then they were buried with him. So then if we're identified with Christ, what aspect of Christ would we be identified with? He identified with us as sinners and he died to those sins. So now we're identified to a risen Christ who is alive unto God as we read there. Death can have no more dominion over him. If we, as our text says, and as we say, as we see here in Romans, if we are alive in Christ, there is no more dominion of sin over our bodies. There is conceptually no control over our bodies by sin any longer. Of course, we know that we do fall into sin at times. How does that happen? Very simply, we get disconnected from Jesus Christ. We, we do two things that Paul warns us in other epistles not to do. We quench the spirit. We grieve the spirit. We quench the spirit when the spirit is urging us to act in accordance with the will of God. We throw cold water on that. No, nope, not doing that. The flame is stoking in me to go and serve, to go and share, to go and preach. But in my flesh, I say, no, I can't do that. No, I don't want to do that. I quench the spirit. I grieve the spirit. When I am heading towards carnality and the spirit of God is whispering, then he's speaking in a normal talking voice. Then he's shouting, don't go there. And I am going, ah, I'm not listening. Ah. 
And I stumble into that same vomit once again. That's how we get disconnected from the life that we have in Christ. And this is why, if we go back to our text in verse 2, we get the simple, and it sounds so simplistic that it might kind of make you a little angry. God, you don't know what I'm going through. God, you don't know the temptations I face. God, if you only knew. You know, people think that Jesus Christ doesn't really understand sin because he never sinned. But I read something that just was a mind-blowing concept to me. Who is the person who understands temptation better? Let's take two kids. One of your grandsons who's naughty all the time and mine who's perfect. (laughs) No, just kidding. (laughs) You set a plate of cookies down on the table. You clearly tell both boys, don't touch those cookies. After you leave the room, the naughty grandson... Believe me, they live in my house too. <laughs> takes a cookie. There's, there's five cookies on the but He takes a cookie and eats it quickly, hoping that his, his grandmother can't count that well. <laughs> the other grandson takes no cookie. A little more time passes by. The naughty grandson realizes, eh, grandma's kind of slipping a little bit. I'll take another one. He eats another one. Now there's only three cookies left. The good grandson's still sitting there patiently. Now, we could, st- we could go on to all five cookies, but you get the idea. Who do you think of those two kids understands temptation better? The kid that gave in on cookie number one or the kid that's still patiently sitting there not having touched any? I would submit to you it's the kid that didn't take one because he's lived longer in that temptation. If you think for a moment that Jesus wasn't tempted because he lived without sin and therefore he doesn't understand what you're going through, think again. Can you imagine Jesus speaking to a crowd of 5,000 people, feeding them miraculously? You don't think people were throwing themselves at his feet? You don't think women of that day were looking at Jesus and saying, wow, and he's got skills as a carpenter too. (laughs) You don't think that Jesus was having all kinds of temptations coming at him constantly? Hey, how about the devil when he was in the wilderness? promising him, look, look, you haven't eaten in 40 days. Man, you can make a sumptuous meal out of these stones. Let's go ahead and do that. Hey, look, you're coming to die for the world. I have the title deed to the earth now. I'll give it to you today. You don't think those things are temptations, the likes of which maybe you and I have never even experienced? So when I see verse 2, I could get a little exercise and think, Lord, that's awfully simplistic. Do you know what I, oh, yeah, you do. Okay, never mind. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Sounds simple. If I, let's just put it simply, wherever you direct your gaze, your thoughts are going to follow. And if you are directing your gaze at something that excites your flesh, you're going to start to devise a path to that thing. Your affections will be ginned up for whatever that temptation thing is. On the other hand, if we set our minds on things above, why then our desires, our thoughts, our affections are going to be rightly placed. Jesus said it the best in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where he said, for where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. You see, this is a realization I came to preparing this message for you today. And it's a hard realization for me to reach because I've been a Christian now for, I don't know, 35 years. I realize that I am not anywhere close to the Christian I should be. I say that because I know, I know the things that I have lived in the midst of. And I'm not talking about, you know, like we run a speakeasy at our house, we sell drugs out the back door. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking simply about if, if we take verse 2 with utter sincerity, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. If I were to lay out a, a, a scale, a balance scale, and I were to put all of the things, all of the time that I set my things on things that are on the earth versus things that were above, I can't say with hand on heart that the scale would be weighted down in the right fashion. I can see that every shortcoming that I've ever, ever run into, every shortcoming I, I currently possess is because of where my affections were at some point in my life or even now. And I'm just being real with you. I mean, you can make your own assessment. You can do your own accounting of your life. But when I, when I think of what this passage is really saying to me, I could look at how things could be so much different and so much better to just follow that simple Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth that we learn there in um, verse 2. What things could I set my mind on that are not of the world? They're the same ones I tell you about every other week. Prayer, devotion time, reading your Bible, but not just reading it, studying your Bible, fellowship with the saints. Now you'd say, well, goodness, don't you do that a lot? You're the pastor. <laughs> I do that a lot. But what I'm saying is, and this was why it was such a troubling, troubling revelation. Even I don't do it enough. Even I don't make the things of the Lord a greater priority all the time. I don't, I, I don't make the Lord a priority all the time. And this is very easy to fall into. You say, well, you'd have to almost live like a religious nut. I'm starting to own that moniker. I'm Really, I mean, as time progresses, as things in our world continue as they continue, I'm starting to, I mean, the, the, we talked about it in the conference we had, the Live Not By Lies conference. I, I, I mentioned how, Christian nationalist has become a pejorative term. Like if you're called a Christian nationalist, that's a bad thing. And I thought about that. I thought, Christian, definitely signed up for that. Nationalist, I believe this is the greatest country the world has ever known. Why? Because it was built on a foundation of, of godly principles. It took its blessing and it turned it out to the world in terms of bringing the gospel to all corners of the world and continues to pump the gospel out in mega quantities, yeah. And I decided I'm a Christian nationalist. I don't care who knows. 
because it is good to promote the things of your country if your country promotes the things of the Lord. If our country didn't promote the things of the Lord, I'd just be a Christian. In fact, I'm just a Christian anyway. My nationalism will never trump my Christianity. But I am for our country, at least up to this point in history, because it promotes and has promoted the things of the Lord. Equally, religious nut? Well, I like nuts. <laughs> and, and I'm a Christian. And if nut means you're utterly devoted to the point where you look weird and different to the world, bring it on. Give me two helpings of that. That's the, that's the reason I say, as I look at this, I say, have I been a nut enough? And, and I'm troubled that I haven't been. We read there in verse 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, you could very easily read past four words in that first line on my Bible and not focus on them, but it says there, who is our life. Christ who is our life. We're often taught that Christ will make your life better. We've probably witnessed the people and say, look, your life's a shambles, but Christ can make it better. Christ gives us great advice for living. This goes way beyond that. This is telling you not that Christ makes life better, but that Christ is life for the believer. He is your life. Again, I go back to I'm not Christian nutty enough. Is Christ my life all the time? Do I view Christ as my life? Or do I view my life as my own in which I invite Christ at opportune moments when the house is clean? No, Christ is my life. And it tells us there, when he appears, we will appear in glory. That glory, however, is conveyed to us now. 1 John 5, 12 tells us, he who has the Son has life. We have life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You'd say, well, I know plenty of people who don't have Christ and they're still living. Well, they're dead people walking is what they are. And when we have life, we have glory. And that glory, it's not a future possession. If you have been saved more than one day, then your glorification, your glory is a past possession. It's, it, it was conferred in the past, I should say. Listen to what Romans 8.30 tells us. Moreover, whom he predestined, that would be all the believers in this room, these he also called. So he predestined you to be saved, but then he called you to himself. Whom he called, these he justified. What does that mean? It means you were declared righteous before God. Not due to any good deeding you did or any avoiding bad doing you didn't do, but simply because of the goodness of Christ, he declares you righteous. And then, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Notice the ED at the end of glory. Glorified. He did it. This is past tense. When John, or when Jesus rather, prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross in John 17, verse 22, he prayed to the Father. He said, and the glory which you gave to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And so you, you see the progression here. We're citizens of heaven now. Why? Because we died 
to sin. We were raised with Christ. We live in Christ. Therefore, our life is Christ. Therefore, we do not set our affections on things of the world anymore because we no longer are part of this place. We're the ones with the ruby slippers and the dog in the basket waiting to go home. There's no place like home. Except don't click your heels three times. doesn't work. Okay? So now he moves to... He's accentuating the good by contrasting it to the bad. So let's read verses 5 through 9. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, Malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, (laughs) we look at this and we say, yeah, yeah, we've heard this before. Our mom and dad told us these things. But you, you should understand this. Conviction about the things that we believe should provoke a change in behavior. Now, that, that, everyone in this room would agree with that, but you know that that was a revolutionary idea in the first century when you would be speaking to a group of pagans? If you look at the different pagan religions, there was really not a lot of uh, belief in, in higher things guiding behavior. In fact, it worked in reverse. Pagan people tended to create their deities based upon their predilections. The things they liked to do, they'd make a god that promoted it. And then you'd, you could just be your same sinful self and call it worshiping God, right? This is why there was always a goddess of fertility, right? Because, hey, we can just do what we love to do, and it's an act of worship. But along comes Judaism and then later Christianity. And for perhaps the first time in human history, there is a law given by God to people that is now a prescription for behavior. What we believe, therefore, constructs what we live. And this was, this was a, uh, a revolutionary thing because most of those Colossians at one time were pagans. And so when he says here, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, what he's essentially saying is take all of those those carnal desires that you have that are really, you could almost say part of your DNA, the things that you want to do. Hey, if you see something really good and no one's looking, you take it because, hey, I needed one of those. If you've gotten yourself into some kind of a mess and people are trying to hold you accountable, why I'll tell them whatever I need to tell them to make them think I didn't do it. There's a lot of the world that still operates this way, by the way. It's it's human nature. If I have a carnal desire, I will go and feed my flesh to satiate that desire. Those are the so-called members of the old man. So when he says, therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, colon. Now he starts to enumerate ones that are, um, that are kind of headline sins. And of course, at the head of the list is fornication. This is a sin that never seems to go out of fashion. And it's, it was huge back in Paul's day. 
And um, surprise, surprise, it's huge in our day. Uh, and, and by the way, when we use fornication, um, let's just say that it's any manner of sexual sin done in your body that doesn't relate to a person to whom you are married. And so that covers a lot of ground. And, and the thing that's, that's most troubling in our day is the options we have for sexual sin make what was going on in Paul's day look like the junior varsity. Because if you think about it, um, sexual sin begins in the heart, right? It begins in the heart. It begins in the innermost part of your being. And then because your eyes are no longer fixed on things above, but on things around you, you, you get overcome with lust. And that obviously results in a physical act, which, um, which has a way of breaking the spirit, the bond of the spirit in the believer. And this is, this is the kind of thing that the enemy has used so skillfully to absolutely ravage many otherwise effective ministries. It's a little bit troubling how frequently we see in the news somewhere where somebody in ministry, a youth pastor, a senior pastor, a famous evangelist or televangelist or, or apologist or whatever, falls into this kind of sin. You know, why is it? Why isn't it? Why don't we see more stealing? Why is it always sexual sin? I firmly believe for this reason. I firmly believe it because there is nothing that God has given to humanity more precious and emblematic of the, of the intimacy that human beings have with Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, than that, than the intimacy that God has constructed for marriage. And there is nothing that will poke the eye of the will of God more profoundly than things that relate to that construct, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. This is why the, the fluidity of gender is so, so disruptive. This is why um, promoting sex in, in grade schools with kids to, get, to teach them how to do it safely, to give 10-year-olds inoculations against STDs. That's the first thing they learn is you need to be protected, not you need to not go there until you are married. This particular area of sin, it, there's, no, there's, there's, there's no coincidence that it's first on the list because it gets to the very heart of who Christ has made us to be. It's like, here's a way to procreate that gives you a, a window into a, a, a taste of the divine creative act and the divine intimacy that one day you will share with Christ. So here is this thing that you do with the person that I have intended for you so that you might be one, right? And so the enemy has devised every conceivable way. And we don't need to catalog them all. You've heard the same litany of things that are online today and, and all the other manners in which people fall into this kind of sin. And sadly, many Christians get drawn into it too. And it, and it, it hinders the church. It cripples ministry. 
and it, and it becomes a laughing stock to the world. He continues after um, fornication with uncleanness, passion, evil desires. Now those are things that that are really the same in the same category as fornication, but are committed in the heart instead of the body. Jesus said, "You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery." But I say that the the person who commits who who has lust in his heart for a person that is not their spouse has committed adultery. Why is that? Why? Because you have taken your heart away from things above. You have placed it on the desires and and the temptations of the world, and you have. You have actualized it in your heart. You have enjoyed that forbidden fruit at first inside of yourself. And in some cases, probably many cases, it ultimately becomes actualized physically. But it starts in the heart. You know, it's funny. Um, back in 1976, Jimmy Carter was running for president. Jimmy Carter was, was, uh, is a Christian. He, he was a Sunday school teacher and his baptist uh, church that he attended and he gave an interview i think it was actually to playboy magazine and um and uh he said in that interview he said i have committed adultery many times in my heart because he admitted to having seen women that he had lustful thoughts about now that was an absolutely boneheaded thing to offer as a politician to that particular magazine but you know something he was spot on correct he was scriptural he had in the scriptural sense done that as i'm sure most maybe all men in this room have if you've seen a woman you find her appearance of appealing or women if you see a man you find his appearance appealing and you all of a sudden start this movie reel running in your head you've committed adultery and jimmy carter was being flat honest and um i think he he got elected 76 so the lord honored the truthfulness of it we read there in verse five covetousness which is idolatry I think coveting is the second oldest religion in the world. In fact, I would go so far as to submit that the original sin was coveting because Eve was enticed on the proposition that she might have what God has. God has omnipotence. Satan's proposition to her is, eat this fruit and you can be like God. And she said, I'll have some of that. Hey, Adam, come on over. And, of course, you know that coveting is anything that we desire that gets between us and God. And most things that we desire that God has not opened a door for us to have gets between us and God. The Bible speaks of your lot in life as your portion, this is why God said that the poor will always be with us because in the, in, the, in the way in which the world is broken by sin and all that, there are going to be people who for a myriad of reasons, lack of opportunity, uh, mental or physical disability, whatever, there will always be people whose portion is very meager. By the way, I believe that 
folks of that socioeconomic status are probably going to be disproportionately highly represented in heaven because they have put their trust and faith in the Lord, not in their own resources. But whenever we are, we are desiring something that is out of the realm of what God has brought into our lives, and by the way, this is, this is not a, a, a harangue against desiring, okay, we have this two-bedroom house, but goodness gracious, the Lord has blessed us with five kids. We need a bigger house. That's just planning. That's, you, know, you know what I mean when I talk about coveting and desiring things, wealth, health, prosperity, which a literal portion of the greater church induces people to pray that way. This is why it is such a monstrous heresy. It's, it's basically saying, God's going to be your accomplice in your coveting. God is going to stand with you. Not only that, he's going to be an enabler. He's going to be your butler, your driver, your banker, your doctor. And he's going to do all these things to give you what you always wanted. Do you see how like just viciously heretical that is? And so he warns against that. Our portion, Psalm 73, verse 26, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, if we have that portion of God that comes to us, lives in us, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, do you really need anything else? Is kind of what Psalm 73 is, is provoking here. And then, you know, we read there, you know, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. See, this is the warning aspect of what Paul is saying is that to live in these things, to desire to live in these things is, is to set you up to receive, to suffer the wrath of God. And this is something that even believers, you might say, yeah, but aren't we, you know, if we're saved, we're saved forever. Well, yeah, but understand that Living in sin, living in carnality, first of all, brings up the question, it, it should cause you to question the sincerity of your profession of faith. If you are living in practiced regular sin, you got to test your bona fides there. And then even if it is a case where you are indeed saved, you are missing out so much on the fellowship with God and the things that God could do through you if you were with him. Then in verses 8 and 9, he gives what I call the so-called clean sins. He says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We seem to think that sexual sin is kind of super hyper turbocharged sin uh, that's really, really bad and you should be shamed. And these other things, well, stuff happens. I lose my temper from time to time. It was just a little white lie. I mean, I couldn't really tell her what she looked like. She'd kill me and wouldn't, we wouldn't have the date or whatever. No. We have to understand that all of these sins equally separate us from God. And when we're separated from God, we are in big trouble. And a lot of these sins can be gateway sins to other sins. Lying is an especially uh, dangerous one. Because if you're comfortable in a lie... Why, then that seems to open up the door to all manner of sinful behavior. Because you, you, you've, you've got a way out. You can always construct a narrative that says, I didn't do it. I never was there. I don't know this man. Um, it was not me. It was the one-armed man, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> 
Finally, he finishes up with the transformational state that we enjoy as believers. He says, and have, he's talking about us, put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, whether there is neither, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This idea of transformation, I purposely prayed these verses during our worship time because really it's kind of the focus of what we're talking about. Romans 12, 1 and 2, but here's verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. This is exactly what Paul is saying in this passage, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we renew our minds? We're renewing our minds right now, aren't we? We need a constant influx of scripture, a constant flow of God's word, a constant indoctrination into God's truth. I don't care how many years you've studied. I've studied a lot of years. I've taught a lot of years. I still don't have enough. Every day I need more. And so do you. And this is, this is what brings the transformation into our lives is that constant steady stream of the influences of God's truth. You know... When you have that, when you have that steady influence of God's truth, when you have put off the old man, you put on the new man, you're renewed in your knowledge, a lot of the things that are the headline marquee issues of our day, all of the racial strife, all of the strife among different classes of people, all of these ways in which we divide ourselves is of the devil. It is of the flesh. The, the hyper uh, focus on, on gender and, and race and ethnicity and all of these things are constructs of the flesh. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 11. When we are in that new man with renewed knowledge, there's neither Greek nor Jew. Now, for them, that was a huge distinction because, again, if you're speaking to Jewish people, there was them and then there was everybody else. And the first Christians were Jewish people. So for them to get over the hurdle that there is no distinction between them in the eyes of God and all of the rest of the Gentile world, that was a gigantic step in godliness that the early church made. And we know that because of what we learn in Acts chapter 10 and then in Acts chapter 15. There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all, we share Christ, all of us here in this room. I don't care where you're from. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how many friends you have or don't have. We are all the same in Christ because the same life that is my life is your life. My life is Christ. Your life is Christ. And that's what we are called to live in in this passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for... The truth that you have laid on us this morning in this passage, Lord. And Lord, sometimes that surrender is awfully difficult. Sometimes we just don't believe we can do it. And yet, Lord, we have new life in you. You are our life. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning for myself and for my brothers and sisters is that we would live out the things we know we would keep our eyes fixed on heaven. We would keep our gaze on you. We would not embrace the world. We would not allow our affections to be drawn into the world. 
Lord, we want to be pleasing in your sight. We want to follow your commands, not because they, they in themselves save us because you have done that, but because they please you, Lord. Lord, let us be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Strengthen us, transform us, remake us, bring us to that point of surrender, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy the day.